Let's pray, and then once again, we will dive into God's word together. Lord God, not one of us deserves the grace that you have poured out and lavished upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. Not one of us, Lord, merits the mercy that you have shown us and given us. In fact, if anything, our sin makes us demerited. And yet, Lord, you have come along and you have rescued us. You have enlivened us as believers. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lord. And as we open your word now uh, to this text, which speaks so much about your mercy and your grace, I pray, Lord, that grace and mercy would blaze forth, shine out from this text that you have inspired and that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us, prod us, nudge us, bring us along from glory to glory, break us if necessary for your glory and for our benefit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There were four people aboard an airplane. The pilot of the plane, a prominent professor, a pastor, and a hiker. And when the, both of the, the plane's engines died and the four people realized that they would have to parachute to safety, they also recognized in that moment that there were only three parachutes for four people. And so the pilot quickly grabbed one of the parachute bags and he said, after all, this is my airplane. I have a right to one of these. And he strapped it on his back and he jumped out of the airplane. The prominent professor then said, well, I'm far too important and too brilliant to perish in this way. So he grabbed a bag, put it on his back and jumped out as well. At that point, the pastor turned to the hiker and he said, well, look, there's only one parachute left and I don't want to be selfish, so you take it. And the hiker replied, well, no, I think we'll be fine. There are actually two parachutes here because when the professor jumped out, he grabbed my backpack. <laughs> well, of course, that's not the parable uh, that we have under consideration today. But I, I do think it makes a good point, that little story about assuming things, but having those assumptions be wrong. So the professor assuming he grabbed a parachute when in fact his confidence was gravely misplaced. Well, friends, at the, at the level of reading our Bibles, uh, it can certainly be true of us that sometimes we make assumptions and when those assumptions are tested, they turn out to be false. So for example, for many of us, as soon as we hear this word on screen, Pharisee, we automatically assume, don't we, villain, bad guy, legalist. However, if we could step into the sandals of the first century audience, the original audience of Jesus who were there listening to Jesus give these parables firsthand, that word Pharisee would strike our ears in a very different way. To a first century Jewish farmer or Jewish fisherman, a layperson, a Pharisee was a respected 
religious leader. In the words of James Boyce, the average first century Jewish person would have regarded a Pharisee as an outstanding man, a leader in his community, the kind of person they wanted to get on their boards or invite to their homes for dinner. You see, a Pharisee was a person who desired that every Jewish person in the land obey the commands that God had given because the Pharisees held that if the Jewish population could only be obedient to God, then they would be freed of their Roman occupiers. And so they strove, the Pharisees did, they strove with great energy to sort of spread the flame of obedience to Torah, obedience to the law of God. The reason that they piled on regulations to God's law was in the hope of preventing people from even coming close to breaking the commands of God. And the Pharisees also had a desire from Exodus chapter 19, verse six, that every single Israelite would be a priest. As Jacob Neisner has put it, quote, the Pharisees' emphasis on the importance of dietary laws and other purity regulations was based on their desire to raise the status of every Jew to that equal, to equal that of priests, and to consider their own commoners' tables in their homes as similar to the table of God in the Jerusalem temple. Perhaps we can start to see why the Pharisees were widely admired. They were widely respected within the Jewish population at the time of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, the tax collector in the time of Jesus was widely despised, yes, by the Jewish population. Uh, in some ways, perhaps things haven't changed that much. <laughs> Uh, tax collectors were repulsive types. Consider this, I think this is an interesting thing, that the gospel writers Matthew and Luke use the phrase tax collectors and sinners. They use that phrase a total of eight times. Tax collectors and sinners. The two are lumped together. Craig Blomberg says this, imagine putting your occupation together with sinners, <laughs> plumbers and sinners, computer technicians and sinners, or in my case, pastors and sinners. This was the rather troubled situation for the tax collector. His occupation is connected with sinners. A Jewish tax collector was bad news. He was considered a traitor to his own country since he was collecting exorbitant, and I do mean exorbitant, taxes from his own Jewish kinsmen on behalf of the Romans. There were poll taxes, there were land taxes, there were transportation taxes, there were inheritance taxes, there was the temple tax, and there were other civil 
taxes, lots and lots of taxes and tax categories. And on top of all those various taxes that the tax collector was going after, he also padded the whole amount with profit for himself. And there weren't really any checks and balances on that. So the tax collector could set his own profit margins. Again, in general terms, the amounts that these guys were collecting, that they were demanding from average Jewish citizens was, they were exorbitant amounts, out of control. Listen to how Klein uh, Snodgrass describes tax collectors. He says this, such people were notorious for dishonesty and in the Mishnah, they are classified with murderers and robbers. People to whom one does not have to tell the truth. And he says, at least later, tax collectors were, listen to this, they were deprived of civic rights and they were not allowed to be judges or witnesses in court. Again, to the general Jewish population, the tax collector was considered to be a traitorous, greedy, dishonest, slimy sort of character. Now, friends, having reacquainted ourselves with both Pharisees and tax collectors, we now go to our parable. We're set up. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. Luke says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, it's noteworthy here that Luke gives us the essential purpose of the parable that Jesus is about to speak here. Jesus purposes to speak in this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now notice already how the gospel writer Luke is focused, isn't he, on the horizontal here, right? On person to person, that's the perspective in this verse. He talks about people who in themselves here on earth believe that they are righteous and they look out on the horizontal at others with contempt. So there's nothing so far here about the vertical, right? About relationship to God. The people described in verse nine are looking to themselves and looking at others as they evaluate, as they assess their own righteousness. And then comes the parable proper, which begins in verse 10. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So once again, to the first century Jewish person who's listening to Jesus firsthand, they think so far, okay, so the story sets up with a hero, Pharisee, with an admirable Pharisee and a snake a tax collector. And both of these guys have gone up to the temple to pray. Well, we're with you so far, Jesus, although we sort of wonder why a disgusting tax collector would be anywhere near our temple. But keep going. Verse 11, Jesus says, 
the Pharisee standing by himself. Now standing, this was a common posture for praying in this culture. And this Pharisee is standing by himself. He has separated himself for reasons of cleanliness, no doubt. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisee must not put himself in contact with anything unclean, including tax collectors. Standing by himself, he prayed thus. God, so far so good, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Now, friends, once again, the Pharisee is the respected figure to the original hearers of this parable. So with those original hearers in mind, let's try to get into their world, and let's start here by trying to see the positive in what the Pharisee says, the positive. Isn't it clear from what this Pharisee says here that he was a person who took Torah seriously? At least at some level. We believe him when he points out that with an eye toward God, he had maintained a separateness from the surrounding godless Roman society with, it, with its adultery and its injustice and its extortion. We believe him. We believe him when he reports here that he fasts twice a week, that he tithes all that he gets. In, in fact, that's cause for admiration because fasting twice a week and tithing all that he gets instead of just the expected grain, oil, and wine. This all exceeded, in fact, what the Torah stipulated. This guy is going above and beyond in his piety, in his Torah observance. Good for him. In fact, in a way, this Pharisee challenges us here. He challenges us. Does our faith impinge on our stomach, fasting twice a week like this Pharisee did? Does our faith impinge on our wallet, tithing all we get like this Pharisee? The Pharisee deserves some respect since it's clear that his faith is touching both his stomach and his wallet, all right? So then what's wrong with what the Pharisee reports to God in his prayer here? There's lots wrong. <laughs> There's plenty wrong. The first thing we have to notice here, notice this carefully, is, is that the Pharisee is purportedly praying to God, but the truth is that his prayer turns out to be a non-prayer. You see this, he begins by saying, God, I thank you. But then the rest of his so-called prayer is what? It's all 
self-advertisement. Notice that he requests nothing of God in this prayer, nor does he express any words of worship to God here. It's all about him, what he does and what he does not do. Lord, I thank you for everything I'm about, for everything that I do, for everything that I don't do, for, for how different and how separate I am from other lesser types. Lord, how thankful you must be to have me on your team, right? <laughs> Lord, how honored you must feel to know me. Notice, friends, that the prayer of this Pharisee is a prayer that actually avoids God altogether. You notice that? The Pharisee's language in the prayer ignores any relationship with God. The Pharisee uses God language at the start of his prayer as he hides from God. And there is a way that we can pray that amounts to non-prayer. We can be avoiding God, we can be hiding from God, even as we employ a little God language. Yes? And this Pharisee models for us that vacant sort of praying that we're all capable of. And of course, what he's doing in his non-prayer is he's comparing himself to other people, isn't he? The Pharisee is a model of example, a model example of what was described as righteous and treating others with contempt. The Pharisee is looking at himself and saying, I see how much I do for the Lord and to the Lord compared to these others. These others, these, these adulterers, extortioners, unjust types, this tax collector, they're so unlike me right? They're all, they're also clearly lacking in the kind of commitment to God that I have. Can you see what the Pharisee's doing? Listen, friends, he's conjuring up a feeling of superiority to others as he compares his life to their lives, his actions to their action. He is congratulating himself, that's what he's doing, congratulating himself while he disdains others. His righteousness is located in self. And that self-righteousness is looking down at others with a sense of disgust. He has confirmed and he has affirmed a high status for himself, even as by himself he is judging others to be of a lower status. He is doing everything in his power to justify himself by himself. Now, we talked at the start of this message about assuming too much, right? Grabbing what we think is a parachute and then jumping out of the plane only to find that we have taken a backpack. Well, let's none of us assume that we are very different than this Pharisee. I won't, and I encourage you, you not to either. 
Let's none of us be saying to ourselves, otherwise the joke's on us, don't say to yourself, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. <laughs> right? I was reading the 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle this week as he brought some application into the mix concerning this Pharisee, and Ryle's words really struck me personally as I read them. He said this, we are, and he's including everybody, we are naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. Yes, indeed. You know, we may try to uh, assure ourselves with some version of, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? Some version of that. We might try to assure ourselves by saying, well, I've never cheated on my husband or my wife. I've never stolen anything from a store. I've never murdered anybody. I attend worship faithfully, and I put my offering into the plate. I'm in the word more than that person. My family is in better shape than that family. I'm more active in the faith than that person. All very impressive. But have you never spoken harshly and critically about person A to person B while person A wasn't around to defend herself or himself? Have you never been involved in gossip? Have you done everything in your life completely selflessly with zero tinge of self-ambition or self-protection? And can you say that you've always been free of the charge of manipulating things for your own advantage? And what about greed or lust or the love of power or the love of praise? And can you say with a straight face that you have no addiction whatsoever to reputation? And what about that unchecked, unrighteous anger that sometimes bursts out? Or what about that envy or that covetousness or those little seemingly harmless lies that we tell? What about our cold indifference to the welfare of our neighbor or our failure to be gentle, our failure to be kind or patient? What's the point we're making? The point is, listen carefully, everyone, and I'm listening myself, that it is always incredibly ill-advised and laughable and sad 
for any one of us to go around feeling superior in any way to others as we compare ourselves to them. Because friends, before God, every one of us without exception is a guilty sinner in desperate need of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to verse 13. We've heard from the Pharisee, and now verse 13, but the tax collector, remember the tax collector? The bad guy? The slimy guy? The drug dealer of his time? The guy who, when you saw him walking toward you on the street, you'd do a quick U-turn and start running to get far away from him. The tax collector who had bilked lots of people out of the little money that they had, this traitorous, repulsive tax collector. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now watch this carefully friends, we had noticed how the respected Pharisee in his prayer, he had included rafts of other people in his so-called prayer, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and this tax collector. And the Pharisee's purpose in mentioning all those people was to do what? To compare himself to them, to scorn them, and to exalt himself above them all. But this tax collector now, in his prayer, notice that he, notice this carefully, he mentions no one else on earth but himself. Yes? He compares himself to no other person The tax collector is not interested whatsoever in how he might measure up compared to other people. His eyes are not busy scanning the horizontal field to congratulate himself and to feel a sense of enoughness as he observes the faults of others and ranks himself superior to them. He doesn't do that. The only thing this tax collector seems interested in here, listen, is how he measures up as he stands before a holy God. How he fares under the evaluation of God. That is the only thing that matters. And this tax collector is not confident whatsoever in his own righteousness. This tax collector utterly lacks confidence in his flesh. He can't even lift his eyes toward heaven. Imagine the picture, he's got his head down and he stands far off. Why? Because he, he's a tax collector. He's in the temple. He views himself as utterly unworthy to be in this place at all in the temple precincts. He's not wanted there. He's a pariah. He's a slimy, deviant tax collector, and so he stands far off. 
And as he stands far off, he understands that in heaven dwells a holy, eternally righteous God. And that standing before this great God, all he can do is pound his chest in existential anguish and beg for mercy. This guy knows that he's got no merit whatsoever to claim before God. The only thing that he can offer God, the only thing he can offer God is his desperation. In light of you, Lord, and the reality of who you are, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I so need refuge. I've got nothing, Lord. And aren't you a place of refuge, God? Be merciful to me, a sinner. I need so much forgiveness for the things I've done. And you, Lord, are a God who forgives rank sinners like me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You, Lord, are the standard of all things, and I have fallen so short of the standard that all I can do now is cry out to you, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've read your law, Lord, and your law shows up how disobedient I am and how unrighteous I am and how sick I am. God be merciful to me, sinner. How can I be concerned with what other people are doing when my own conscience is so burdened before you, Lord, in the recognition of my own shortcomings and sin and transgressions. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see friends, the tax collector's confidence is not at all in himself, amen? His confidence is in the mercy of God. All his chips are in, so to speak, on the mercy of God. He's banking on the mercy of God because that's all he's got. That's all any of us have. That's all any of us have. Now behind those words, be merciful in our English Bibles, it's interesting, there lies there an interesting verb in the original Greek text that has to do with propitiation. In other words, the Greek word here has to do with appeasing wrath or averting wrath. The tax collector is praying in essence, God be propitiated toward me. May your wrath toward me, deserved wrath as a sinner, may your wrath toward me be appeased. I'm standing here in the temple, may the sacrifices that are offered here in this temple that you Lord have ordained to avert your wrath from sinners, may these sacrifices be for me Lord. The tax collector is pleading for atonement. 
The tax collector is pleading that his many sins be covered and paid for and taken away. I don't know about you, but I love, I love the tax collector's raw praying because it's so gingerbread free. There's no window dressing here in his prayer. There's no eyewash. There's no ostentatiousness or verbal clutter or long-windedness or, or carefully chosen, pious-sounding phrases. It's just down to business with God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so, friends, we have these two guys. We have the respected, admired Pharisee who worked hard to preserve Jewish faith and tradition in the midst of all the Roman influence. And we have the despised, slimy tax collector whose reputation was nothing but mud and corruption. But we've heard them both pray. What's the verdict on these two men? Well, Jesus gives us the verdict in verse 14. Speaking of the tax collector, who's just finished praying in verse 13, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this despised, untoward, sketchy tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the respected, admired Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone, doesn't matter if you're a respected Pharisee, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So of the two men, surprise, surprise, to the original hearers of this parable, it was the tax collector who was in the right here. As he thrust himself, didn't he, on the mercy of God, and as he viewed himself from the very depth of his heart as a hopeless, helpless sinner whose only hope was God. God indeed has mercy on this ungodly man who had turned toward him. The man goes home justified, forgiven, and right with God. Now, my friends, we have a God who loves our dependence on him. Did you hear that? He loves our dependence on him. He loves our banking on him. God delights in our helpless brokenness and our emptiness that is pleading for his magnificent mercy. God loves our trust in his grace and our great suspicion and distrust of our own righteousness. God accepts as worship the comparison of ourselves, not to other people, but the comparison of ourselves to his holiness and his righteousness, a comparison which inevitably is gonna result in us raising the white flag of surrender. God delights whenever a sinner abandons his or her 
frantic efforts at justifying himself or herself. God wants us dead to all of those self-righteous efforts. And so the closing question is this, what will you do with this word from Jesus our Lord this week? And I'm counseling each and every one of us to take a hard and sober look at our lives and our quiet times. Where, in actual fact, am I staking my confidence? In what? In who? Am I staking my confidence in self? What I can do? comparing myself to others, or is our only confidence actually and rightly in the mercy of God, in Jesus Christ, who showed his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. Now let's do something a little different here, and instead of me jumping straight into prayer, let's take some silent time, each of us to do some business with God, as we've heard the word, and then I will close us at an appropriate time. Father, forgive us when this past week, even, we looked upon others with contempt, had disdainful thoughts about others as a way to make ourselves feel enough. Our enoughness comes from you. And I pray that the gaze of our hearts would turn from the horizontal to the vertical. That you would help us to catch a vision of your holiness, your righteousness, not to make us feel awful, Lord, but to redeem us, to bring us to a place where we then look out on the horizontal and, ha- and feel no superiority to anybody because we recognize that before you, we are all on the same plane. And so, Father, I pray that this word would be powerful this week for us at work, at school, uh, at home, wherever it is, and that we would be doers of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.